Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. We're at chapter 13. I think this is the halfway point, 25. Yeah, just over halfway. On this episode, I'm joined with Alexandra Pickett and Brian Alexander. Welcome to the pod. So happy to have you for Between the Chapters conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you for hosting us. This is great. So 2006 and Web 2.0 is what this chapter is going to focus on. And this is the user-generated approach to the web. So we've already talked about blogs and videos in other chapters past. Uh, So this is going to be a combination of all that. uh, And what does 2.0 even mean? So I don't know. What do you think this means? I think I'm going to throw this over to Brian first of what does Web 2.0 mean to you then and now? Well, now it just means a historical phase. Uh, it just refers to the web circa 2000 to 2010. I mean, back then when we started using the term, it just it gave us a nice way of rethinking the web as um, a, a web that was more modular, that was more social, that was more literally interactive, that was much more user friendly in terms of production of content, and and that was a uh, it was a good heuristic. It was a nice way of distinguishing the web from, you know, the web circa 1996. Uh, and that was very powerful. And then around 2000, I'm saying around, you know, it really depends. Um, we kind of transitioned away from that to social media. Uh, and that was in part the, uh, the shift to mobile devices, which were uh, much friendlier to social media, uh, uploading and consuming content. Uh, partly it was just because of the sheer size of social media and the perception that some classic web 2.0 stuff had declined and that people had shifted to uh, social media. So, you know, the idea would be someone wasn't blogging so much, but they were using Twitter. Uh, someone wasn't uh, setting up uh, uh, discussions on their own. They were hosting them on Facebook, that kind of thing. I think a lot of that was overstated. Uh, I think in the blogosphere, which is incredibly derided, um, still to this day, is enormous. I mean, it's still just absolutely vast. Um, and I think people just use both and, but uh, social media really sucked up the uh, the information sphere. And now that the worm has turned, now that we've gone from the, a passionate love affair with social media to what some call the age of the tech lash, uh, people are targeting social media uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, some ways that I find more robust than others. Um, and so I think that's taking down with it some of the uh, Web 2.0 ideas. When you hear some of the criticisms of social media and you hear some of the recommendations for what to do about it, um, there's some echoes back to the 1990s uh, right away from that. So there's an interesting historical recapitulation. The chapter is 2006, um, and I have been involved with online teaching and learning um, since 1994 when we first started the SUNY Learning Network, and um, it was very exciting time, the advent of this, the um, graphical interface to the web and graphical browsers and seeing all that happen in real time and being involved in online teaching and learning um, and not really knowing any better, you know, and focusing on on pedagogy rather than the technology. 
technology um, pretty much from the first day. It was all super heady. And I was, uh, you know, I, I have always been really interested in technology um, for educational purposes. And so this time um, was a very exciting time. And every time something new came out, I would, I would, tested I would join it I, I I had millions of logins I still do because every time a new thing would come out I would I would I would join it and I think I joined um, Twitter um, uh, either in 2006 or 2007 and it, it, my first tweet was, I don't get this. This is stupid. That's my actual. <laughs> and, and 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 actually, the person who turned me on to Twitter, I happened to read a blog post by a woman who was from um, the New Media Consortium. She uh, she mentioned this thing called Twitter, and so I just clicked on the link and I went to it and I signed up for it because that's what I do, and and that was my first tweet. And so little by little, I started looking at who she follows, and so I started following her people that she followed, and and that was my strategy. It, it was you know to kind of just lurk and see what other people were doing, and then little by little, I you know started um, uh, essentially documenting. It was kind of like a diary for me of all the tests of the technologies that I was looking at. And I would say, I tried this thing and I just signed up for, you know, there, there would be these, um, you could get an invitation to try something. I, um, they still do it, I think, uh, for some things. But, you know, I, I would always, you know, email the head of the company and say, tell them I'm an educator and I'd like to test your your tool for instructional um, or educational purposes. And, and, um, and so I just used it that way. And then little by little, I started meeting people and becoming it, you know, interacting with them. I think it's how I first met Brian. I, I think, um, um, you know, I certainly met people like uh, Martin Weller and um, George Siemens and Jim Groom and, um, and all of these people who, oh, Howard Rheingold was another person who I met um, through Twitter. And Twitter became an incredibly powerful um professional learning network for me, um, where I could bypass the library, bypass the research articles, and go directly to these people that I consider rock stars in um, educational technology, or in online teaching and learning, or in, um, you know, all the different areas that they were interested in that I shared affinity, or an, an interest uh, in as well, and just talk to them. And so Twitter was my first sort of thing. And then there were a num, I mean, it was like a flood of, of eye-opening experiences in using these tools often for purposes for which they were not intended. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and testing them. And, and I taught online at the University at Albany. Uh, and I used my course as, and my students as guinea pigs to test out all these tools. And I made them all get Twitter accounts. I made them all, um, you know, join Delicious and then Digo. And then, um, you know, uh, we used voice threads and net vibes uh, to collect all of our, they all had to blog. And so I had, 
I stitched all of these technologies together outside the learning management system because I hated equally every learning management system that we ever used and in part because it was so constricting. You're asking these students to do all these learner-centered things to co-create with you, to create stuff, to make their thinking and learning visible to you as an online student. And then at the end of the term, you take it away from them. Like I make them, you know, they can't just give me their opinion. They have to write a thought thing and then they have to use you know they have to actually cite stuff you know I, I, I don't really care about their opinions I care about how, how they can support their assertions with with scholarly work and and then that all goes away and there's no easy way to like pull it out of the discussion posts or pull it out of the learning management system and so I had all of these you know, um, small pieces loosely joined is what we used to call it. And, um, and like that, yeah, I didn't coin that term. Um, but, um, it's part of sort of this, um, open, um, pedagogical way of thinking and of really thinking of the, the student as a creator uh, of content, which was what Web 2.0 was, at least in the definition that the distinction between Web 1.0 and 2.0. And, and I was asking my students to be that engaged to create and co-create things with me and with each other and and then lock it in the learning management system I just it just was antithetical to me so I had them put these little digital footprints everywhere and 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 have the experience of writing to the public web and, and that was part of my objectives in in my my learning objectives was to have them have that experience of contributing to the read write web right and and to um, engaging not only engaging and interacting by contributing their voice but listening to these people like Brian that I consider rock stars right who who have been doing this you know forever and and who now are so accessible they're their thoughts today, like part of that experience for me, helped me to make these people real, right? So the social web, that social aspect of it, helped me to see them and feel them as real. And, and, and then it also helped us all to kind of create this really an interesting community of people who shared an interest in stuff. And I wanted my students to experience that too. So Web 2.0 for me was an incredible period of time that for me lasted well beyond, you know, what the article says, uh, you know, when it started all going south. And in fact, that was a surprise. Okay, so I'm going to back us up a little bit because we're jumping to another chapter that's ahead. And I'm going to keep us in Web 2.0 because I don't want us to get into social media just yet. So in thinking about my own experience, my introduction was actually uh, through my friends of the library. I'm a secret librarian by heart. Um, and they introduced me to the folks on like the different Flickr and Delicious. You mentioned Digio. Um, it was actually about organizing and getting the metadata and curating in different ways and also sharing of resources and content because you're jumping to the social which is fine but let's just stick to the web 2.0 side of it because I think what we forget about um, besides signing up for these um, different resources um, wiki was there we we had some ways to create little spaces and tools. I love that you talked about tying them together, but these utopia of web 2.0 was supposed to deliver us something 
before we even got social with Twitter and Facebook, um, that I thought was just kind of magical to go and find really well curated lists or shared folders or content that really, before we even got to like know the personal um, on its own, I think had a unique value to the digital traces and spaces that we were creating. I don't know. Was I wrong to think about that? I agree completely. And I think that's one of the ways uh, unheralded now that Web 2.0 spirit succeeds. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just listening to Alexandra and I'm just nodding and saying, yes, yes, this is great. I mean, I, I remember each of these steps when, uh, uh, you know, when Delicious took off and um, when we had all these great, um, great early tools. And people forget that um, podcasting was a Web 2.0 time. I mean, the term itself comes from 2004, right? right. Uh, and so we had all these. So on the one hand, we it was more social and that you could interact with people more easily. But as you say, it, it was a great way to corral the vast resources of the web. So you could do that by following someone's blog who would uh, give you information about where things were going. Of course, you could follow that through RSS and RSS readers. Uh, you could do that through uh, social bookmarking, uh, through folksonomies. And all of these are now just part of the web, you know, where, where so many things are naturally tagged, you know, YouTube videos, for example. Uh, but if you look even at some of the behemoths of social media, you think about Pinterest. I mean, that's another way of following that idea of just trying to wrangle all these digital objects into a place, a kind of bottom-up DIY, lowercase d, democratic curation. I, I think that spirit is still there. I mean, there are ancestors to that spirit. You can think about, you know, of course, uh, librarians, but you could also think about people who used to make audio or videotapes for other people or tape mixes. Uh, and we still have that that spirit and that ideal, which I think is great. Um, and that's a, a, a great extra. I mean, Alex is pointing out the power of student voices, of students seizing part of the open web and, and making a mark on it and doing so in a way that shows their thinking, their learning, how they're progressing. And we still have that um, as as part of uh, as part of the web. Even I mean, it's it's kind of a web 2.0 is kind of the, the secret history uh, of the web as we know it now. So I guess the end of this in 2009 is what you want to dispute, Alex, a little bit around the web 2.0 is dead, or um, this is where Martin gets into the idea, if you're not paying for it, then you are the product comes out of that, like us using these spaces and all the signups. Uh, what does that mean to put your information into it? And that morphs a bit around the end of that, I think. So I didn't really, the thing that surprised me was when, um, you know, you and, um, oh my goodness, the woman who's in um, Vermont, red hair, no, Middlebury. Where, um, oh, Amy Collier. Amy yeah. Collier, yeah. Um, and who was the other one? Um, started deleting their Twitter. Um, Audrey Waters does that. Oh, yeah, I remember Chris Schaefer had started that as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, like, the, like this, that was when, and that was not that long ago. And, and it really shocked me. And it was what introduced me to this um, notion that Martin talks about in, in the chapter about, um, you know, us being the product and, and that being sold. I never really, I never really um, uh, felt that understood that I didn't understand that. Um, and, and I kind of, I guess, ignored it in my sort of like Pollyanna way. I just went around and spread my stuff everywhere. Right. And, and I was very, very open, you know, and, and really thinking I don't, 
have any secrets um, and I'm not afraid because I feel like I'm in control uh, of my, of what I do. You know, I think, and I try to teach my students that too, um, to, you know, you have to be like in any city, you don't walk in, in some streets at certain times for certain reasons. On the net, you don't, you know, give out your social security number or whatever. You know, you have to be smart. And I wanted to be there so that I could have the weird experiences that I did have um, so that I could then guide my child, who was young, very young at the time, and and um, and my students. And so I felt like like all of these people, like I had colleagues at the time who who would say, I can't be in Facebook and I can't do Twitter stupid. And, 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 and I kept thinking you are going to be teaching my child or teaching the people who will teach my child. If you don't learn how to do this by having your own experiences, how are you going to help her learn how to do it? And, and then, so, you know, I felt really obligated actually to be out there and, and learning how to do it responsibly and safely. And, and so this all came as quite a big surprise to me. I didn't understand what the companies were doing with our data. Right. And Hey, no one did like, no one really thought of it at the time. Understand it. And, and I, I and so I got educated by Audrey and by Amy and by you and by all of those who started posting instructions on how to delete their stuff and and I had such mixed feelings about it because I had had such incredible experiences in my utopian stupor right <laughs> um, um, thinking that it was, you know, me and you and Brian out there, like interacting on stuff that was like interesting and important to us. And, and uh, meanwhile, I didn't know that underneath the covers, that's, you know, stuff was happening, all kinds of stuff was happening. I just didn't really pay attention. Um, So yeah, it was very, um, it was a weird awakening, uh, I guess, to, to that, um, more bleak side of of it and um i'm still grappling with trying to get my head around it and understand it better um you know i I don't know i i thought that that part of the chat you know the, the the way that martin explained things in the chapter did help uh, did help me to understand some of that because I kind of glom it all together. For me, it was not just a way to organize the content. It was also the social aspect of it, right? And and also the use of technology for academic and professional purposes that involved connection and interaction with other experts or people who shared affinity for the topics. And it was about teaching and learning and it was about sharing what you know and it was about helping students to understand and and other faculty because I'm in charge of faculty development helping them to understand how to leverage technology for academic and professional purposes to take control of that and to use it in learner-centered ways that whole notion of the um you know, the, the, um, content creators, users as content creators, um, really for me is about in, in education is about learner centeredness. So instead of me creating a video to explain the research process, 
I ask my students to pick a tool and, and they can choose Powtoons. They can choose whatever the Animoto, they can do whatever they want. And they actually don't even have to do it in a video. They can write a poem. They can, I, I want to give them the agency to choose how they want to make their thinking and learning visible to me. And you can do that with these technologies, um, with these tools. Students have the ability to represent themselves how they want to articulate themselves in media that they want to. And to me, that's so incredible and so powerful. And uh, just give extends your toolbox, your, your ability. And by toolbox, I mean, your pedagogical tool. You know, I, I, I don't know, I, I still kind of grapple with the reality um you know that that these are businesses <laughs> um that have perhaps sometimes you know not my best interest at heart and and that these are also incredibly powerful tools that help me to express my pedagogical self in ways that I wouldn't otherwise be able to but anyway, so um, there there is the other side to that, and it's some, something that we're learning. And I, the reason I asked yourself, Alex, is for that, and Brian, because we talk about digital storytelling. Like this is the biggest proponent that I know you are a fan of, Brian, and it's just changed in that decade of when Web 2.0 shut down to 2019. I wrote a blog post in 2019 that says, "Where am I auditing myself online?" Because we never thought of it back then in the early aughts, the mid aughts. I don't think so. Well, I think we, uh, I think this is a fantastic time for digital storytelling. I mean, this can, in my most recent book, I had an academia next. I had a chapter which I know would irk some people, but um, trying to imagine that we look back over the past 30 years and think of this as a creative renaissance time. I mean, where we have experienced tools of creativity and publication being democratized and you know people will say well that's paul that's pollyannish utopia well actually most renaissances have also been terrible times in other ways if you look at you know the italian renaissance or the scots renaissance but um but the point was that we that we have had this that if if you look at youtube on the one hand you could say yes youtube um has a lot of content that you might not ever want to see um yes youtube uh its algorithms uh were privileging uh content in ways that, as far as we can tell, either emphasized uh, extremism in forms of emotion or politics. Um, But at the same time, it became the world's single largest cultural meeting place. Uh, It became um, a fantastic place for people to get their creations out in front of other people and also to have conversations with them. Um, and I think both of these can be true at the same time, that, that these platforms can enable what Shoshana Zuboff deems uh, surveillance capitalism. And at the same time, they can support an incredible amount of creativity. And if you think of the past 10 years, in addition to those platforms, the tools for creativity have just gotten easier and easier. They've become simpler in many ways. Uh, if you look at the mobile app world, there's just so many uh, storytelling creation tools out there. Um, I, I think this is something that that I celebrate. I'm a little nervous of some parts of the tech lash in that they seem to want to uh, uh, make this sharing more difficult. I mean, uh, ending Section 230 in U.S. copyright law, for example, would definitely uh, make it much more difficult for people to uh, publish and share. Um, 
but I, I think we do have uh, all this creativity now, and that's a, a fantastic thing that we should celebrate. It's interesting. I was reading a lot. Um, I like Will Aramis's article on how to start fixing the social media web because he says it's two things. It's both imagination and regulation that's needed. And the reason why I think we're openly grappling on this episode is because we don't know all the answers and we're still trying to figure it out. And I love that you called it a renaissance, Brian, because in that time we struggled with any new medium and modes, whether it was books in the printing press, whether it was televisions and what it's going to do to wreck our brains. Um, we're still figuring out what to do with this kind of web 2.0 meets social media space. And yes. it's a reckoning that is going to be, they say it takes what, 10 to 15 years to sort it out. We're in the midst of it, trying to figure it out. And we don't have all the answers because some of these spaces have certain affordances and they also have certain challenges. So I don't think it's a, I think it's a continuum. I don't think it's a this or that. I think it's a, where do you fall on that continuum now? And what does it mean? And I, I wonder about um, these modalities, like, I guess the, the question that I never asked back in the day, because they were all free, quote unquote, and online, um, but they gave me a space and a sandbox to play in with y'all and also discover really cool shit and get me interested in the things I'm interested in, in studying and researching and teaching. Um, so it's not like we could just throw everything out, but what does the sandbox look like now, I wonder, for folks coming on online? And is it shaped differently because of who we are as a society? Maybe, I don't know. These are my questions, I think out loud and in my head. I think that, I'll just say a couple of things that I want to get out of the way and let Alexandra take over. The um, First, there's the indie web idea and both in and out of education. So you get things like a domain of one's own, you get the reclaim hosting, uh, you get a lot of us who are making content in ways that are not beholden to Bezos or Zuckerberg. Um, and that's a great thing. Uh, and the second is I, I think people generally have a more friable attitude towards digital content that we tend to uh, expect the platforms to either be temporary themselves uh, or to mess with our content. I mean, one of the reasons, uh, one of the many criticisms of Facebook, for example, is their moderation strategy is, is a complete shambles. Uh, and they constantly you know, delete content that they shouldn't have to. And, and you can point this to, to other places as well, like um, uh, Tumblr, for example, which uh, you know, turned their entire platform into a, a G-rated uh, space uh, basically overnight. Um, so I, I think a lot of people uh, have that sense of, of the internet being this kind of more fragile space in terms of contents uh, life. I, I do want to grab one more thing you said. I, I love uh, your your gesture towards history because we're still fighting over, over some of these. And, and you can see the echoes that, that go through from these other media into the digital world. For example, you mentioned television. The expression, you're not the uh, user, you're the product, that was applied to TV uh, first. And uh, right now, I think in many ways, we've just, we've moved away from thinking of television as a terrible thing. And we now romanticize it and think it's awesome, uh, which is another problem because it lets us excuse all kinds of horrible things with television. Uh, you mentioned radio. Uh, one of the ways that if you look from say 1905 to about 1930, um, all over the world, you had this 
boom and wild creativity with radio because radio was DIY. You could build your own crystal set and people were making their own radio stations for their, you know, their apartment block or for their house. And, and then the U.S. shut it all down with the Radio Act circa 1930, 1932. Um, they gave us the FCC. It made sure that only big organizations with a lot of capital could afford uh, licensing and to go through policing. The FCC had its own police force, which they still do. And we really chilled a lot of creativity. And I know a lot of people, a lot of actors since the web began, when Sir Tim Berners-Lee unleashed it on the world, a lot of them want to go back to that. When you look at TV executives, when you look at the big IP holders, uh, when you look at people for different political points of view, they want to go back to that big, heavy gateway and gateway production. And that argument is still out there. And you will hear it this year as people talk about what to do about the radicalization of the internet and, and so on. So just a couple of things. Alex, I went on too long. I'm sorry. Please, you take not over and say other things. Not at all. Um, you know, where are we today? I mean, from my perspective, which comes from online teaching and learning and, and really trying to leverage um, technology in innovative ways to help express um pedagogy in some way, my, my pedagogy in some way, or learning presence or teaching presence. Um, there are tons of tools out there that still allow us to do that. And the learning management systems that in the early 2000s were horrible, um, you know, are still horrible, but they're, they're better in many, some are better in some ways. Um, you know, I still rail against the box, but um, and but there are tools out there that have survived. Brian, you mentioned um, you know YouTube, which I leverage, and Vimeo, um, and and you know in various ways, both in terms of creating stuff and leveraging existing stuff into curated playlists that are embeddable. For example, that that whole you know, ability to embed things um, for instructional purposes within the context of a, of a of a private space for students is pretty cool. And and you know, I've made some attempts to get out of some of these things. Like I've tried DuckDuckGo, and and I I created a, a space in this thing called um, Diaspora. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like supposed to be a free yeah. you know, um, Facebook like thing. Um, but when I was in, this is some years ago now, when I first set up my account there, there was some, you know, Eastern European guys in there and <laughs> not any of my friends. So like, if, you know, I've posted some things there, but you know, it's, it's like, I want to be where my people are, you know what I mean? And so that forces me into, um, into Twitter and Facebook and, and now more and more a little bit of LinkedIn, but you know, I left Twitter actually for a bit. Like I think many of us did because it got, you know, when you're news, when you're, when you're news person and Oprah are talking about it, it like lost something for me. <laughs> you know? And they would use it and use the words in weird ways. Right. Like, I don't, this is a long time ago now I'm dating myself again, but yeah, it got a little weird and, but I came back and, and, and I'm now, you know, I, I'm in there and interacting and, and 
you know, learning and sharing my learning in there again. And my connections um, are, you know, I continue to use Facebook and in spite of the fact that I have family members who will refuse to do it. Right. So I don't know, you know, today things are different. Yeah. Uh, I will say your quote, though, I want to be where the people are. Remind me of the Little Mermaid, Ariel, wanting to go where the people are. And I think that's the biggest thing is Web 2.0 shifted. Martin talks about at the end of the chapter, there's a hype and he's very embarrassed about his excitement. Well, we all were excited because it connected us to like ideas and things, but also people is what it wove out to. I'm, and not, I'm not embarrassed. And when I read that, no. I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> oh, Martin. <laughs> it wasn't just hype, Martin. You know what I mean? And and I mean, I felt it was palpable. I was passionate. I was connected. I said, I mean, I still feel like I am. And I am in part, you know, who I am and, and, and what I know as a result of that and that time, you know, and, and what I learned during that time. And I, I am not embarrassed by it because I think that utopian Pollyanna kind of view that I probably still have um you know I think there's there's something there that I and I still say the same thing about second life there's something there (laughs) well this is positioned before the second life chapter so don't worry you'll get to hear about that next week um but before we wrap I was wondering is there any kind of question you'd like to pose to Martin or the community about this topic that maybe we could have a think on based on our kind of retrospective and thoughts to this one question is to ask about the impact of uh, automation um, on uh, Web 2.0 social media. So I, I don't mean robots, I, I mean AI and, and, and algorithms. And then uh, a second is, um, oh gosh, I have so many questions. I'd be really curious to see what they think about uh, how copyright advances. Um, I mean, you know, copyright has been in many ways the big demon um, or a big devil for uh, the open internet uh, since the beginning. Um, and I, I'm really curious where they see that advancing. I mean, on the one hand, we had uh, um, the December uh, congressional bill um, included increased increased legal sanctions for people for uh, streaming uh, supposedly pirated content. On the other hand, um, Disney hasn't pressured Congress to extend copyright, uh, which is a big shock. This is they're one of the biggest uh, players in tightening copyright restriction. And then I'd also wonder what the, what they think about the uh, the LMS. Um, it, you know, to my mind, in many ways, the LMS pedagogically is is pretty stagnant. I mean, we've got a, a set of tools that are are more or less mature. They do certain things, and we know from the campus computing survey and other resources that that faculty underuse the heck out of LMSs, um, that most of the exciting tools are, are either ignored or barely touched. So I'm wondering where they see the LMS headed in the future. Um, and then the last question uh, I would ask is about uh, radicalization. Uh, do they see uh, the structure of the internet changing uh, as different national governments or other institutions try to crack down and reduce or prevent radicalization. And we've seen some signs of that in Britain and in uh, France. Uh, how would that play out in general and also how would that play out in particular for education? Yeah, those are all awesome 
questions, Brian. I I ditto and echo them. My interest would be um, in higher education in particular, and and what the um, uh, what insights um, or or changes or or um, uh, ramifications might be seen in terms of of um, uh, you know the effect on on higher education. He did talk in the chapter a bit about. Um, uh, the granularity of education, and he did mention uh, micro credentials and 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 you know what all that means. I think I think we're all thinking about you know where we are right now, and COVID has a an aspect of this that is pushing things um, you know to go um, much further, more quickly with with fewer tr with much less training than one would like uh, for for some of us, right? Um, so that would that would be interesting, you know, to sort of think about in terms of of higher education quality. I liked what um, uh, uh, Brian was saying there at the end regarding the LMS. I'm always um, you know, I wrote a blog post, I think it was in 2008, and um, the the title of it was The CMS is a Dinosaur, and you know what happened to them. Well, back then it was called a course management system, and this was in 2008. Ouch. It's such a better term for it because it's not about learning management system. I mean, it's 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 about the course backend. It's about course administration. So it is. It is. It's a yeah, exactly. Um, you know, whenever they in a learning management system, they call something a blog. It's like nails on a chalkboard for me. That is oh. not <laughs> and actually in the wrong. You know, most people, if you don't, if you're not trained, you don't know how to do an online discussion. Well, listen, I think you, you will enjoy Alex. If you haven't listened to it, any of our listeners haven't listened to our LMS rant. I had a panel of women. Oh, we went off on the LMS. So don't worry. It's yeah, good. I want to listen to it. Yeah. Good. Well, I just want to say, I think I didn't suspect this. Well, I should have suspected by who I brought on, but we have so much to say about the web 2.0 and where it's brought us. And I would love to hear other people's questions because I have so many of them that really are instigated from this point um, and development of how we use the web and had more users on the web. So Martin, thank you for this chapter that I didn't think it was going to be that big of a thing, but turns out I have way more questions now. So this makes it a good thought piece. So thank you, mm -hmm. Brian and Alex, for con conversing about this chapter with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Laura. Blessed to see you. Blessed to see you too. Brian, awesome to chat about this stuff. Thanks for inviting me. It's great talking with you both. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.